Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Here in the remote mountain areas of southern Mexico, an amateur mycologist, R. Gordon Wasson and his colleagues, searched for what up to then had been considered a myth, magic mushrooms. We went into the Mazatec area, far from the highways, remote from Mexico City. There we found the sacred mushrooms. Wasson would also discover and record the ancient mystical rites of the mushrooms from a local shaman or magical priestess, Maria Sabina. It was Maria Sabina, a Mazatec shaman, who gave Gordon Wasson some of the flesh of the gods. He became the first outsider to participate in a velada and to taste the mushroom himself. All that you see during this night has a pristine quality. The landscape, the edifices, the carvings, the animals, they look as though they came straight from the maker's workshop. This newness of everything, it is as though the world had just dawned. All these things you see with an immediacy of vision that leads you to say to yourself, now I am seeing for the first time, seeing direct, without the intervention of mortal eyes. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. Much has been made of that moment of cultural transmission in 1955 between the Mazatec shaman Maria Sabina and mycologist R. Gordon Wasson, who a few years later published an article in Life magazine about his experiences with the sacred mushrooms and unwittingly became one of the founders of the Western psychedelic movement. But cultural transmission goes both ways. The article in Life brought Maria Sabina unexpected fame and turned her small village into a mecca for curious foreigners. It remains a psychedelic tourist destination to this day. As the current psychedelic renaissance grapples with acknowledging its inheritance from indigenous cultures and how the new movements to decriminalize and regulate psychedelics will impact those cultures, it's time we turned the focus of this mini-series towards those ancient roots and present peoples. My name is Bia Labachi and I'm a Brazilian. I live in San Francisco since four and a half years. I'm an anthropologist. I have a PhD in anthropology. I am executive director of the Chacruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. I'm also public education and cultural specialist at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS. And finally, I am adjunct faculty at CIIS. And the main focus of my career has been the study of traditional use of sacred plants by indigenous people, shamanism, ritual, religion, drug policy, and also social justice. I have given a great deal of emphasis to ayahuasca and peyote, but I've also studied other plants and medicines, and I'm an enthusiast and an eternal student of this magical path of sacred plants. And the reason 
why I do this work, huh? Perhaps because I tried these substances and I like them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, psilocybin was the first one that I tried. What was the context of you trying psilocybin? The context was when I was a pure being in my early 20s, backpacking, traveling the world, finding out about different cultures. So I had started studying anthropology, social sciences in Brazil, and decided to do a one-month trip to Mexico. And I got completely enchanted, fascinated, and in love with Mexico, and I didn't want to return. And I, I didn't. <laughs> I ended up <laughs> staying backpacking around, and I stayed traveling one and a half year, and I visited the Sierra Mazateca, the Huautla region, mm-hmm. Mazatec region. And I had the chance to to try magic mushrooms or Nino Santos or whatever you want to call them. And I had a profound spiritual experience, very beautiful, very illuminating, and kind of opened this door in my head. And that coincided with me visiting a lot of the ruins and spending a lot of time researching and thinking and having existential reflections about traditional cultures, about ancient people, about other civilizations, other paradigms, other ways of being the world, and also ended up going to the region of Real de Catorce and tried peyote there, also tried LSD during this trip. So it was the mixture of the early 20s, that idealism, that feeling that you're going to change the world and you have everything ahead of you, and breaking this mental uh, structures and references to where you were raised and brought and just realizing that there's much more out there and that we just got a little piece and a little narrative Mm. and that our understandings were quite limited and feeling quite renewed. And at the same time that everything was new, it gave that feeling that there was something extremely familiar about it all, Mm. like a place where you really come from and belong as a human, which has to do with this relation to the non-human world, to the invisible world, the world of spirits and the world of what's beyond, and some kind of strange sense of harmony and belonging to this mystery of life, which I think is what touches a lot of people's hearts. One Mazatec that spoke in one of our conferences referred to the magic restrooms as Biblioteca Viviente, living library. And that library, to run with the metaphor, is ancient. It spans continents and cultures and substances. But the knowledge of the commonality of entheogenic plant uses among vastly distant and different cultures is more recent. When Maria Sabina gave R. Gordon Wasson access to that living library, Wasson was able to start connecting the dots as he pioneered the field of ethnomycology. Because of the way they affected the spirit, he liked to call mushrooms theogenic, God-producing, rather than hallucinogenic. Seeing God, mystical experience, religious ecstasy, these motifs are not restricted to this part of the world. His Mexican experiences strengthened Wasson's belief that the mushroom had paved the way for religious belief in other cultures as well. Take the Eleusinian Mysteries in ancient Greece, a set of rituals in the cult of Demeter. 
Revealing the secrets of the rituals was punishable by death, but we do know that participants consumed a special drink called Kikion, which led to powerful and ecstatic visions. Wasson was sure the potion contained hallucinogens. An antique vase decorated with ears of grain made him suspect the potion contained ergot, which is related to LSD. Later archaeological findings did find traces of ergot, a fungus that grows on rye and barley, in a temple dedicated to the two Eleusinian goddesses. Wasson's work paved the way for contemporary anthropologists like Dr. Labache, who are unearthing evidence of ancient psychedelic plant use far and wide. There are stone paintings in modern-day North Africa and Spain. Some experts have believed that ancient cultures used them as long as like 9,000 before Christ or 4,000 before Christ, respectively. In the Americas, the Maya consumed a beverage called balche, an infusion of the bark of the lancepod tree mixed with honey from bees that fed on morning glory flowers, known to be high in ergine content. Olmec priests used the dried skins of the bufo toad to induce trance states, while peyote use dates back more than 5,000 years across numerous Mesoamerican cultures. Traces of peyote have been found alongside other ritual items, like bone rods, incense tubes, and deer scapula rattles. But what about psilocybin specifically? The first thing to observe is that this is not a new drug. It's not invented in the lab or the last trend in the Bay Area. It has important history, deep roots. We know the Aztecs were using sacred mushrooms from the accounts of 16th century historians. Fray Bernardino de Sahagún wrote that those who eat them see visions and feel fluttering of the heart. The visions they see are sometimes frightening and sometimes humorous. A sculpture of the god Xochipilli dating to that time and found on the slopes of a volcano a few hundred years later also features a variety of psychoactive organisms, including the mushroom Psilocybe astacorum. But evidence of the use of sacred mushrooms goes back much further than the 1600s. In the Valley of Mexico and the rest of Central America, there's evidence of use perhaps for 3,500 years. Some of the most striking of that evidence are what is known as mushroom stones. It's a collection of nine stones from Guatemala. I believe it's from 1,000 before Christ. And it's like an anthropomorphic little man under a mushroom. So there's the mushroom stone that also is a man. This idea that these are beings that are alive. The stones range from 14 to 18 centimeters, and they look just as Dr. Labache describes, either a man under a mushroom cap or a man whose head is sprouting a mushroom cap. The man and the mushroom merged. And up to today, there's many different indigenous cultures that use sacred mushrooms in Mexico. Totonacs, Mazatecs, Mijis, Zapotecs. There is a kind of obsession with the Mazatec or, so to speak, Mazatec centrism that everything is the Mazatec. But in fact, there's many other cultures. And these cultures have been persecuted by Inquisition, hmm. violently persecuted by the Spaniards, the biggest genocide of the history, around 25 million or so indigenous people throughout the Americas, and, and also how Inquisition has tried to oppress the traditions around sacred plants. 
there has been a systematic attempt to extinguish these practices. If psychoactive or theogenic plants, to use Wasson's term, somehow contributed to the rise of religions, there is an irony in how historically it has been organized religions that claimed a monopoly on the sacred and sought to stamp out all other forms of mind alteration, not just in the Americas, but in Europe as well. The sensuous, ecstatic, and visionary powers of hallucinogenic substances were well known until the Middle Ages. But by this time, wise women with knowledge of certain types of plants were persecuted as witches by the church. The Inquisition made sure that none of their knowledge of magic survived. Even in a more modern secular context, the political power centers have sought a monopoly on the control of mind alteration through the prohibition of known psychoactive organisms and through attempts to capture them and keep them secret. Just listen to Terence McKenna describe how the CIA was involved in Gordon Wasson's trip to Mexico. On Wasson's second trip back to Wakla to confirm the mushrooms, he actually was accompanied by someone who was in the pay of the American Central Intelligence Agency. They were very interested in these mind-altering plants and substances. And in fact, had it not been for the fact that Albert Hoffman was working very quickly to publish the structure of psilocybin, it was the intent of the CIA to hold it as a secret compound only for their use. It shows that uh, governments are perfectly aware of the social importance and implication of these mind-altering substances. The CIA's efforts failed, in part because Hoffman, who discovered LSD, did publish the molecular structure of psilocybin, but also because Wasson published his article in Life magazine. Science and journalism allowed these substances to escape the clutches of the U.S. government. But long before that, they survived the Spanish Inquisition through other means. And a lot of these practices remained existent because either they became more syncretic, kind of disguising traditional practices or mixing with Catholic imagery and symbolism, and also a lot of secrecy. Hmm. And some of these practices also remained because they are kind of staying in remote conditions. And so that's how some of these practices have survived. For all their might, the Spanish colonial empire and Catholic Church failed to eradicate these indigenous rituals surrounding sacred mushrooms and plants. Thank God for that. These various indigenous cultures are distinct, as are the substances they hold sacred. But whether it's psilocybin, peyote, or ayahuasca, there are things they hold in common. The main characteristic that is kind of common to all different Amerindian perspectives on the use of sacred plants is this idea that plants are fungi or cacti. They are, in fact, beings. They are sentient beings. They are spirits. And they are, in this sense, like humans. They have agency, personality, they have their own will, they have their own thoughts, their own capriciousness or idiosyncrasies or teachings. And so you have to learn how to relate to these plants. And if you follow certain restrictions, certain taboos, certain protocols, you can learn from them. These plants or spirits, they can also punish you. 
(laughs) (laughs) And you can create relationships, alliances, and communications with them. And the use of these plants are also very much central to all of these cultures. So it's different than the idea of counterculture for us, that using psychedelics is something exotic and kind of disobedient or out of the parameter or trying to challenge the status quo. But it's rather central to the transmission of knowledge, to the transmission of culture, to celebration, to sociality, to the determination of territory, and most importantly, to humanity, to the definition of what is human and how did humans appear and came to be in the first place. So it's a very common belief, certain myths of origin, that the history of these plants are also intertwined with the history of how men appear on earth as well. Hmm. So these plants are really central pillars to many traditional cultures up to today. The idea that these mushrooms or cacti are sentient, or that they were crucial to the origin of humankind, seems hard to square with a Western scientific worldview. But as Michael Pollan would tell you, all plants have a kind of subjectivity, a kind of agency, a set of desires and goals. In other words, a kind of sentience, even if theirs is very different than our own. There's also Terence McKenna's stoned ape theory, that the ingestion of psilocybin by proto-hominids was crucial for the development of language and human culture. But whether that indigenous belief in the sentience of mushrooms or the importance of sacred plants in the origin of humankind is to be taken literally true or not, it reveals a deep respect for these plants and fungi that has, so far, been rather foreign in the Western context, where they have historically either been forbidden, a sign of rebellion, or used recreationally rather than ceremonially. But the spectrum of how these plants are used in various cultures isn't a binary, sacred or profane. There are many in-betweens. So there's multiple phenomena. I mean, there's different variations. You know, you have traditional use of sacred plants by indigenous people, but you also have the emergence of the syncretic Catholic religions in Brazil that use ayahuasca. And in the United States, you have the Native American church, which in many regards has combined different traditions from different ethnicities and also from northern Mexico, and in some cases also Christianity, and created what is the most important native religion in the U.S. And you have in Africa, for example, you have the use of iboga in the Bewitted tradition. So there is a multitude of sacred uses, spiritual uses, from native to mestizo to semi-urban and contemporary ones. And you also have the whole counterculture, which is a, another phenomenon. There is a strong narrative that I find a, a lot among psychedelic scientists or researchers. There's this narrative that the counterculture kind of had excesses and did things wrong, and this created a big backlash And now we have an opportunity to correct it. And so we are almost lost the chance to do research. And but now, fortunately, with the advancement of research, we're back on track. I think that narrative certainly makes sense from the point of view of scientists that are perhaps focused on the science around things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think it's a kind of limited understanding of what the counterculture was. I don't Mm -hmm. think the counterculture was 
such a disaster that set things backwards, but rather I think the counterculture was really a revolution. And I'm extremely grateful for the counterculture. <laughs> and I think we're all here in a way because of the counterculture. Hmm. And although there were problems or excesses, it also broke a lot of taboos and created a whole set of values that I feel are much more aligned with what are values that I believe. And I also think that there is a kind of tendency to romanticize indigenous people and indigenous uses and indigenous traditions and relate to this generic surviving image of this wisdom. But I think we also have to look at our roots with the use of psychedelics in the West and find legitimacy in those own terms. So I think there is a fascinating culture around psilocybin, for example, in the United States, that is entirely legitimate. Hmm. And in a certain regard, the use of mushrooms is just part of a much larger culture of foraging. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to say this word. Yeah, yeah foraging. foraging. Totally. Yeah, we're, we're big mushroom foragers. We do yeah. that a lot. Exactly. So there is a culture that is after nutritious, gourmet, uh, medicinal, aesthetics, you know, a whole love for mushrooms. And part of that is related to psilocybin. And then this psilocybin contemporary culture that exists here promotes a lot of legitimate uses, the therapeutic, the medical, the nutritious, the spiritual, the ecological. And so there's a lot of really legit uses in the United States as well. And there is the festival culture, the culture of self-transformational raves and spiritual gatherings where mushrooms are used frequently with a great deal of respect. And I think even in the apparently so-called recreational settings or social settings, there is a deep search for healing, spirituality, Mm. meaning that is common to all those settings. We can complain a lot about things that we don't like, but we hardly go around celebrating with gratitude, everything that is working and that is good. Mm -hmm. We also do that with drugs. We point out to the few problematic mistakes or the few excesses, the few charlatans, the few sexual abuse, the minority, which is problematic, and take that as for the whole. Mm. But that's like a, a metonymic relationship. It's like a little piece of the whole becomes the whole. So it's just talking about what's negative and what's not working. Mm. It would be like going to a divorce lawyer and ask him, what do you think of love? he's gonna say you know well watch out don't get married right his reference is that when things didn't go well in the worst case perhaps Hmm. but there's a lot of cases that are not going bad so i guess my answer is more you know positive to look at the Hmm. ways that we do have our own protocols and values and ways to organize ourselves that these plants or fungi are considered legitimate and integrated and functional and absolutely part of people's lives in ways that we have not learned to value and to celebrate Mm. and to acknowledge and recognize.
We could give you lots of reasons to support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, this is Canon. I'm a big supporter of the Labyrinths Patreon page because the work that these people do is really thoughtful and it's one of my favorite podcasts and Patreon accounts in the world. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. We've heard before you talk about how there is a need for there to be a set and setting that is not just something that you set yourself up for an individual session, but that there should be a a cultural and a societal set and setting that integrates these experiences of spiritual plants. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Imagine like if you were a teenager, you know, you go to your mom and you tell you're doing something and she's going to say, hey, that's a really bad idea. Why are you doing that? And then she's going to be really upset with you and give you all this lecture, you know, and correct you. Versus if you are a teenager and you tell your mother you're engaging something that your friends are doing, the parents of their friends are okay with it, everybody is aware. It's very rare that you can have like a harmonic and integrated and positive experience of a substance in a culture that highly demonizes, pathologizes, criminalizes, and misunderstands the substances. Even if your individual thinking is positive or open, we are mammals that are gregarians and we are in groups and we live in society and we are not independent solo flight people. And so if you are brought up in a society that rejects this, it's very possible that, for example, you're going to have a paranoid trip. And part of that trip could be thinking that the police is going to get you or Mm. thinking that you transgressed Mm. and did something wrong. So we really have to create means for society to accept and integrate. If you have an experience during the weekend and you come Monday to the workday and your co-workers are going to treat you like a druggie or like a pervert or like somebody that is in need of a support for his weakness, it's hard to feel pride and to feel good. Yeah. So this whole idea, this obsession with the individual with me and my psychic and my history and my problems and my trauma and my childhood, this emphasis on the individual is also characteristic of a society that is very individualistic. And these substances Mm. have been traditionally used in group, by group, or on behalf of the group for group reasons. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's about accepting and understanding the nature of these experiences as legitimate and as part of our cultural identity, not the Hmm. identity of only indigenous people elsewhere in remote South America or in deep in the jungle or the deserts or the mountains, but among us in cities in the West. The mission of Chukruna is to create public education around psychedelic plant medicines and to create these bridges between traditional uses, indigenous people, uh, shamanism, ritual, religion, and the world of psychedelic science and psychedelic-assisted therapy. And also part of our mission is to platform and give visibility to voices that are normally not invited to sit in the table, such as indigenous people and people of color, and queer people, women, 
immigrants, people from the global south. The field of psychedelic is very dominated by a white male biomedical narrative, and we're trying to rewrite this narrative and insert other voices and other perspectives. These things didn't start with the counterculture. The whole psychedelic movement is heir to indigenous people. We are only here today because of indigenous people. We learned with them, we studied their behaviors, imitated what they do to create our own versions of healing with our own substances or just created laboratorial variations of those substances. And we are trying to put that into the mainstream thinking and help people understand and acknowledge indigenous people. And one of the things that we have developed in this regard is our program, the Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative of the Americas. And we have selected a network of about 20 indigenous organizations that we partner with. And we have created this program where people can donate to the program. And then we distribute evenly. And we don't demand that they show us PowerPoints or fundraising decks or (laughs) make a big, sexy catch to get our dollars. But the main values that matter for us is that it's not up to us to tell them how to spend that money or what their priorities should be. So we support their autonomy, their sovereignty, and their rights to self-determination. Do you see the Oregon Health Authority Board that's currently figuring out what adult-supervised psilocybin use is going to look like, do you see that whole process as doing right in terms of this inheritance from indigenous cultures? I think it would be premature to make a strong statement. I have just been invited to join the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board Research Subcommittee Mm -hmm. and recently also gave a talk over there. I feel that there's a lot of people with their hearts in the right place and wanting to create things that are inclusive and diverse. I think there's a lot of good intentions, but it's going to be hard with all the capital that is emerging on the field and all the pressure and all the new sharks and all the new Hmm. psychedelic startups and the million dollar people coming. You know, it's still kind of shocking how many self-appointed Experts exist by the minute emerging on this field. I have been studying these substances for 25 years. I went dozens and dozens of times to the Amazon and worked in Mexico eight years. I get bothered and feel weird when somebody calls me an expert because to me, the experts (laughs) are the indigenous people. Nevertheless, I've seen people that have arrived five minutes ago and are, you know, happy experts on everything. So There's a lot of paradoxes and a lot of challenges ahead of us. And I think we have to do what we're doing, continue the good work, continue finding the kindred people to fight the good fight. We're curious if you have any thoughts on the subject of sexual abuse in the psychedelic world, both in the modern Western context and in indigenous cultures and how to safeguard against that and what that means for the movement and the culture in general. Yes, I do. Uh, Unfortunately, also have bad experiences firsthand myself. In Chukruna, we have created our guidelines for raising awareness around the issues of sexual abuse. 
This guide was the result of several months of joint work between a group of people, researchers, academics, indigenous women, victims or survivors of rape, and legal experts, anthropologists. And it was a very challenging process because it's very heated and very delicate and people feel really strongly about it. So, so we kind of got accusations from all sides. There were, for example, like, strict contradictions between like American white feminists and native indigenous women in the Amazon on things they were telling us. A lot of like more white male mainstream thinking were just thinking we're creating problems and that was going to compromise the movement as a whole and that we were trying to make it difficult for people that need healing to approach ayahuasca. And then on the other extreme, we had some white American feminists upset with things like we're saying, think about the kind of clothes that you wear when you go to the Amazon, because that might give mixed messages. It's a different culture. So they were interpreting this as victim blaming and saying that, you know, we were saying that because women had were wearing a certain kind of clothes or swim naked or whatever, that then they, they deserve to be raped, which obviously was not what we were saying. So it has been a very intense process. Nevertheless, also very rewarding because I do really feel a shift. Hmm. When we started this work over 10 years ago, I mean, publishing and writing about this and presenting in conferences and doing activism and holding circles with women, we found much more resistance in talking about all of this. I do think that it's getting more talked about. There has been recently a woman that posted a video on Facebook talking about how a shaman manipulated her. This is quite triggering. You know, he asked her to masturbate to him to sort of promote her self-healing or whatever. And she did it. And of course, later realized how abusive that was and made this video about it. And it went kind of viral. And then it became like a TV story in Peru. Hmm. And this guy was severely criticized. This kinds of things in the past, we got much more flack, much more backlash. Mm. And I think this is changing. I think people that think that talking about this is causing harm to the movement are wrong. And I, I invite them to rethink that because by owning our mistakes and by talking about our shadow and by showing light into the aspects that don't work, we really empower ourselves. So I think in general... It's not that there's more happening, but that there is less tolerance. Mm. And that's good. Right. We have to applaud that. Always remembering that we need to investigate. And we also need to hear all stories. Mm -hmm. And everybody deserves a voice. The Chakruna Institute is not engaged in the cancel culture. We believe it's important to promote justice, but in a compassionate way, mm -hmm. with kindness away from this toxicity of social media mm -hmm. or the Facebook warriors <laughs> <laughs> or the people that are just, you know, using these causes as a, a means of self-promotion and self-legitimization, but that are not really doing any work. Mm -hmm. And so it's complicated. There's multiple factors and multiple players, but we do think that talking about this openly and with kindness and focused on justice and equity, we are able to change things. Well, that is so refreshing to hear. One of the things we've been thinking a lot about is the distinction between treating harm or treating maladies and the betterment of well people model and the, the false dichotomy between uh, mentally unwell and mentally well. And 
what we're seeing in the Western adoption of psychedelics in the legalization movements in certain areas is how they walk that line between like, is this for anxiety and depression, or is it something that you can just do for spiritual benefits? And we're curious what you think about that spectrum or that line, whether it's a, it's good to differentiate or not, and what the indigenous perspective on things like the use of this for, in particular, things like trauma. Oh my God, you guys are going to have to invite me for a beer or something because you're really <laughs> sucking my brain and also making 10 questions in one. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go by steps. Indigenous views on, on healing. I think that we have a kind of reductionistic understanding of illness that is just a physical dimension. Like one molecule is going to cure one single thing. And I think that traditionally there is another understanding around the notion of healing and healing is seen as a much more holistic affair. So there is the dimension of the physical, yes, but it's also a, a relational understanding. It has to do with relationships. So the relationship of, of you with yourself, the relationship of you with your kin, with the community, but also the relationship of the individual with the world of the spirits, with the non-humans, with the invisible world. And the disease is a disharmony. It's an imbalance on all of those relations. And healing, therefore, is a much more global and holistic affair that involves all of these relationships. So indigenous views of healing have much to teach us on our own arts around healing and understanding that we are part of something bigger and that we are always in relationship to other things, which is also at the base of this idea of reciprocity. Being reciprocal is, is at the base of all of relationships, of all of human interactions. So this is to the notion of healing, to the notion on whether psychedelics can be used to heal people or to the betterment of the well, that for me is a no-brainer. It's only a few people that believe that, that psychedelics are only good to heal a few diseases. That's a minority of scientists working inside a lab because all the rest of humanity know that's not the case. Hmm. So traditionally in all continents and for all cultures, and also, as we said, in the setting of counterculture and the uses of plants and psychedelics in the West, we all know that these substances are good for a bunch of things. Yeah. And it's not just for one thing. So it's a very naive proposition that maybe is instrumental to talking to a very naive prohibitionist system. It's the counter discourse to prohibitionism. That is, yeah. you know, these things are demoniac, pathological mistakes, taboos. And no, they really heal you. They're good for you. So, okay, I'm, a, I'm okay with that. And I believe in the healing potentials and the science around it. But it's not just for healing. And all these categories are really mixed up anyway. What is healing? What is pleasure? And this idea that the healing is like sacred and the rest is profane and, and therefore problematic. I mean, anybody who had psychedelics know it's not the case. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, the pleasure is also healing. The aesthetics is also healing. The humor, and even. The humor is very traditionally uh, important in indigenous cultures. And regarding the role of psychedelics in treating the trauma of imprisonment, 
I think there is a big potential. Of course, again, it's like we're trying to fix up things that have deep roots and problems. It would be much better if we could like improve our prisoner system. Oh, yeah. Stop incarcerating people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or the same with veterans. And, you know, we should be thinking not just about treating veterans and their trauma, although they do deserve all the healing they can get, but we should be thinking about the systems we have put in place that create these wars and that create these prisons. And so that's why psychedelics should be used also for justice and <laughs> to think critically about consequences of capitalism and systemic oppression and systemic racism and uh, systemic class issues that are intrinsic to the way we relate to each other. Because, or else you're going to be, as we say in Portuguese, tentando secar gelo. You're trying to make ice dry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're trying to make it dry, but it just keeps on uh, getting wet. The amount of harm that we produce is much bigger than our ability to heal the people that suffer those harms. And that's also why we launched our recent book, and I invite everybody to read it. It's called Psychedelic Justice. And we're talking about all of these problems, all of these issues, and how psychedelics can play a role in several of these systemic forms of oppression. Slightly more of a personal question. Our podcast is called Labyrinths, and we look at stories of when people feel lost or when societies feel lost. And we're curious about, in your own journey to the place where you're at now, through studying anthropology and through your experiences with ayahuasca and psilocybin and other things, when have you felt the most lost? In my life, you mean? Yeah. Come on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) When I have feel more lost, well, in the line trying to get, uh, you know, paperwork to become official citizen of the United States. How about that? Hey, (laughs) that's real. (laughs) I have tried to get my green card during Trump. It has been very challenging. But finally, I managed to get my American citizenship. The process of becoming an American citizen has been a really challenging one because I have already had all this qualities that merit recognition as a person, and I had to prove it all over again. And Mm. that's a kind of humiliation of immigrants Mm. that is a challenge. And to just try to show that you have value and you're not an imposter and you're not a fraud. And so for me to pass this process and now feel that, uh, you know, I can drive a car and (laughs) I have legal documents and all of that, Uh, It has been a real big journey, a journey that also costs thousands of dollars. Yeah. And I think to me, generally speaking, adapting to the United States has been a huge challenge. Although I love the psychedelic movement and I love my several communities and friends, I feel there is a lot of hatred and a lot of people get offended and a lot of sensitivities And sometimes it's hard for me. We also in Brazil, we kiss each other when we meet and we touch more. And I feel I feel a little bit lost at times in the Mm. United States. Mm. I also as much as I speak English well, and I sometimes I do mistakes. And then, you know, sometimes people have picked on my English or because I said something that was not completely right and get judged and and accused Mm. and criticized. 
And so it's been challenging to, yeah, to fit here, but it's also a land of, of dreams and of hopes. And I do really feel that naive American dream hope as well. Mm. And I do have my, you know, my nonprofit is named after Ayahuasca, Chakruna Ketchel Word, my main teacher. And then when I see my my Bank of America credit card of the Chakruna Institute, <laughs> I think, wow, this is possible. It's true that we were rejected in three banks <laughs> before mm. we got that approval because of the word psychedelics. Mm. Wow. But now we are operating and trying to make this movement, try to make the psychedelic renaissance something that is meaningful. Mm. And I invite everybody that is listening to join our membership system and support us because we're trying to create a self-sustainable, little, revolutionary, cool nonprofit, kicking ass and making a splash and talking the truth and having fun. Amazing. I love it. Well, if we get to San Francisco anytime soon, we will buy you that beer. (laughs) 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 Next time, in part five of our miniseries, we'll be turning our attention inward. We've looked at the anthropological and cultural history, the politics, and the neuroscience of mushrooms. But what happens inside the brain is not synonymous with what happens in consciousness. So we'll be speaking with Sam Harris about mindfulness, meditation, and what the psychedelic experience is like from the inside out. In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Instagram, at Knox At MC Carbon. And if these Labyrinths episodes are making you feel a little less lost, please consider giving us a five-star review and spreading the word on social media. This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Fun fact, for every hour of labyrinths you enjoy, we put in dozens of hours researching, outreaching, interviewing, scripting, editing, and audio engineering. What keeps us going? Coffee. Coffee. So if you're enjoying labyrinths, please buy us a coffee. Head over to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson, where you can make a monthly donation. Thanks for getting lost with us.